Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free. everyone and welcome to the Bubble Hour where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I write the blog Unpickled. I've been telling my story there for over eight years now about life after alcohol. I've been writing about it since my very first day of sobriety. I tell my story there and I invite you to share your stories here. And uh, today, I have to tell you that I, um, things didn't quite work out as planned, and my guest wasn't able to make the time that we had allotted. Um, but since I sort of had the time on my calendar anyway, and I'm going on vacation uh, for two weeks here, uh, and I know there's not going to be any shows while I'm gone this time. Sorry, guys. Um, unless I take my phone on my kayak again and <laughs> record something for you out on the water. Um, but anyway, uh, I wanted to make sure that I got an episode up for you before I take off for a little bit of a break. So here's what we did. Um, thank you to everyone who pitched in to save the day by sending me questions. Uh, I thought we'd try just doing an Ask Me Anything episode where um, people from Facebook and Instagram sent in things that they uh, wanted to ask um, my thoughts on, and I will answer those questions. So here's here's my intention as I do this. Um, I'm not an expert, and I think it's super bad for people in recovery, even recovery advocates, to allow themselves to be sort of celebrity in any way. Um, and I think that for me to assume that you care what I think um, puts me into into the danger zone there. So I want to state my intention as I do this, that I have the best intentions and the right mindset as we go into this today. So like every guest on the Bubble Hour, my intention is to share my experience with you and to hope that it shares, it, it sparks, um, you know, food for thought or an awareness, gives you some ideas of, um, sort of comparison points for your own recovery. Um, the main purpose of every exchange on the bubble hour is to make us both, us all feel less alone. So by taking a bit of time today to talk with you, um, that's good for me. And, uh, and hopefully, uh, you know, listening is good for you. And I think um, I know 
there's people that listen in their car as they drive. Um, you know who you are. Hello to you. And uh, there's people that listen on, on the subway or uh, as they walk their dog or as they're doing dishes. Um, it kind of fills their time with a trusted voice and a message that helps to support what you're doing in your day, right? And, and passes time in a positive way. So that's my goal here. And, um, uh, and I say that as much to make sure that I have my head on straight and don't fall into that sort of, I'm so fabulous, everyone cares what I think kind of mindset, because I think that's really dangerous, dangerous territory. I mean, it's annoying for anyone, but it's especially tough for people in recovery because we are really all about wrestling with our ego, right? That's such a big part of this whole thing. So um, I just wanted to say that to start out with today to, to really state my intention. And I feel like when I do that, either out loud or even in my head, it really does help me come at things from the right angle. Um, I also want to tell you before I go into the questions, um, if you haven't looked already, please do me a favor, have a look at jeanmccarthy.ca. So that's the website I set up so that Unpickled, the Bubble Hour, the music, including the music for this show, and the book that I'm writing are all in one place. So um, all of the recovery advocacy stuff that I'm involved in are all in one place. And yes, I realize the irony as I just talked about ego and and then I'm like, visit my website, jeanmccarthy.ca. <laughs> um, but uh, again, you know, it's I'm at the stage of the game with writing a book where I have to put my name out there and I really feel that because what I'm writing, I hope is a gift to um, other people in recovery. Um, it made sense to me to tie all those things together. So I hope it makes sense for you too. Um, what I'm really trying to do with the book that I'm writing, I'm not an expert, so I didn't want to write a how-to book. Um, I'm not a journalist, so I didn't want to research uh, a what's out there kind of book. Uh, I feel like as a storyteller and a writer, I wanted to write fiction. And I'm in a in a um, a subgroup of the online group that I'm involved in, and it's a book club kind of. So we sort of post on there as to what books we're reading and whether or not they're triggering or um, have positive messaging for us. There is a whole emerging literary catalog of recovery literature or quitlet. I'm using little air quotes as I say quitlet, um, and uh, I'm not sure that my work falls firmly into that category, but what I really wanted to create was stories that have sub-themes about recovery that are just good fiction and tell good stories, but also that for people like you and I who are sort of, you know, looking through life with the recovery lens, that we would see an added dimension to these stories knowing what we know about mental health, addiction, recovery. Um, there's a line in the first chapter of the novel that I just wrote um, where one of the characters is talking about an old boyfriend and how he says to her, we're all just narcissists and codependents. And it sort of sets up a framework for a number of the relationships that are talked about as the story goes on. So that's the kind of thing that I feel like, you know, there's no hidden triggers. I want to write books that you can pick up and read and know that um, you're not going to 
read a whole bunch about drinking, even if you're reading about recovery. Sometimes that's a hard thing in, in recovery literature is that it can be quite triggering um, when the person is talking about their active phase of addiction. So I really want to write stories that explore those themes without being triggering. So um, anyway, that's my goal. And if you happen to be a literary agent, uh, please send me a message. If you uh, are a writer who has a literary agent and you'd like to refer me to them, I would be eternally grateful. A couple of you have done that, and I'm super thankful to you. And um, I don't know if, if there's a literary agent in your life, please send them my way. That's me asking for your help. And that's all I'm going to say about that. So let's go on to the questions that were sent in today. And this, I hope this works out because I think this is really fun and I love the interaction of it. So um, I'm going to start with some of the questions that came in from Instagram. Uh, so Melissa writes, great idea. Thanks for asking. How to manage my ever-increasing anxiety. Background, I practice yoga, meditation, and exercise in nature every day. Good for you. That's excellent. I, get a, I, I got a dog and changed my job to less stress, but my anxiety has worsened since giving up wine over a year ago. I can't quiet my mind of the constant look forward in my day and let, just, uh, just let go to live in the moment. Um, Melissa, thanks for this question. I think that's a really big deal, and I think a lot of us seem to fall into the category of having used wine to self-medicate anxiety. Um, I, of course, won't give you any prescriptive advice of what you should do, but I will tell you that when all the things that I did weren't enough, and for me, that was a couple years ago when it was a very heavy time. Um, my dad was in sort of the last phase of his illness. We were moving. Um, my father-in-law was sick. It was just a really hard, hard year. And I could, I could not get control of my thoughts. Um, and I had taken my dog for a walk and walked around the lake crying the whole way for absolutely no visible reason. Nothing, you know, had triggered me. Um, but I remember just coming home and sitting on the stairs and thinking, I've, I need to do something more. Everything I'm doing on my own isn't enough. And so I called my doctor and I called my therapist, who I hadn't seen in a long time. And I just went to see both of them. And we together made a plan up to what to do. Um, for me, that involved going on uh, medication. So I took an antidepressant. I stayed on that for two years. What that did for me was extremely helpful through that difficult time, but it also gave me a reminder, a reminder, I don't know, maybe I never knew. It showed me, for me, how it felt to feel grounded again and how it felt to feel calm. And as time went on, um, some people can go off medication. Some people need to stay on it forever. That's between a person and their doctor, in my opinion. Um, I decided to try life without the antidepressant, um, feeling that the circumstances of my life had settled down quite a bit, and I was feeling quite a bit better, and I was able to regulate after that without the medication, but it was extremely helpful for me. So that is my take on that. Um, sometimes, you know, when we're not masking our symptoms anymore, we can just get real and brave about the fact of, you know, this is what it is. And um, and there are ways to deal with it, and we don't have to do it all alone. Um, the next question comes from Anne. 
who says um, she's 12 months sober. Congratulations. And she's listened to at least 50 episodes of the Bubble Hour um, that help her out. That's awesome. I'm so happy to hear that. Anna asks, is there anything you miss about drinking? I miss the buzz of the first glass of wine, she says, but soon remember how it feels as afterwards. So what do I miss about drinking? Well, I think about it this way. You know, I miss um, I miss my old boyfriend from grade eight, but I don't want him back. <laughs> you know, um, so I there are some things that I miss about alcohol, but not enough to want it back in my life. Um, I guess it seemed like an easy solution, and I miss. I miss thinking that I have an easy solution. I miss thinking that there's an off button. Um, the, the fact is that was never really true. So all of the things that I thought alcohol was doing for me, it wasn't. So um, I don't want to kind of get into triggering anyone by like romanticizing the things about alcohol that I liked. I just don't think about it a whole lot anymore. Just like I don't think about that grade eight boyfriend or um, crop tops or stiletto heels or a number of other things that used to be an important part of my life that I've decided to leave in the past. (laughs) Um, But good question. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Tanya asks, was meditation hard for you in the beginning? Oh my goodness. I hear this from lots of people. So I couldn't be alone with my thoughts and I've, said this before on the show that really my main reason for drinking was to try and pass out the moment before my head hit the pillow so that I wouldn't have to lay there alone with my thoughts because if I started if I started reflecting on all the things all the things dot 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 um, I just could never get to sleep so meditation and yoga were very scary to me because uh, to me that was really facing the things that I was trying to get away from. Um, yoga is easier to me than meditation because it, um, uh, someone is talking you through it and telling you what to do. Um, so, you know, breathe in, reach out, breathe out, swan dive forward. I, I love that. And even if I'm just practicing on my own without guidance, I'm sort of hearing that recitation in my head. So I'm I'm not feeling like I'm alone with my thoughts. Um, But meditation is, it is hard for me. I don't, I don't have a regular meditation practice right now. I kind of am in and out with it. The one thing that I'm currently doing a lot of is when I go to bed at night to get, to get that monkey mind under control is I breathe in through my left nostril, feel the air tickle my sinus, move the air awareness over to my right nostril and breathe out and then I breathe in through my right nostril until I feel the air dancing in my sinus that's the only way I can explain it it's really quite lovely and uh, and then I in my mind move the air over to the other side and then blow it out so some people use their hands for us alternate nostril breathing I cannot handle that I feel like I'm drowning I have tiny little nose holes and I don't know I think even if I'm not there's, you can restrict your breathing side to side. I don't know if you can 100% restrict it, but to me, 
it's the concentration on that that is um, the power of the exercise. So even if a scientist came and put an air meter under my nose and said, Gene, you're not actually switching your breathing from side to side, um, that probably wouldn't matter a whole lot to me. So, uh, Tanya, the answer is yes, meditation was hard for me. It is still hard for me, and I kind of need uh, an exercise to go along with it. Um, Stella asks, what are some healthy food snacks you can recommend instead of ice cream? I need to get my cholesterol down. Thank you. So I love ice cream so much, and um, uh, it's embarrassing how much I love ice cream. But for me, it was really the, the thing that I used to address my triggers early on in sobriety because um, – I didn't know at the time why it worked. All I knew is whenever it was, whenever I, I my mind cried out for a glass of wine, which was often, I just went to the fridge and took one of these little ice cream ball things out and stuck it in my mouth and had that instead. Um, so what I learned subsequently, two things. First of all, uh, sugar lights up the pleasure reward circuitry and um, as a result, negates cravings. So, um, that's why that helped with cravings. But if you listen to an episode I did earlier this season uh, with Lisa from Nutrition from Recovery, um, I have her forms on my desk here. Listen, I told her, see, you can hear me shuffling through the forms. Um, so, what she taught me is that um, this, and this is interesting. If you haven't listened to it, I really encourage you to go and um, and and check it out. So uh, many, she says that many alcoholics experience a sugar crash um, as um, um, as a craving. I'm stammering over my thoughts because I'm trying to do two things at once. I'm trying to look her up and um, and uh, talk to you about this at once. So, see, I need a producer and an assistant. Um, so many alcoholics um, mistake their sugar crash for a craving. And um, uh, it feels that way. And, and there's this sort of a panic, and it, and there can be a bit of an adrenaline rush that goes with it. Sorry, I said I said Lisa. It was Chris, Chris Engen of Nutrition for Recovery. So that was on June 4th, episode 22, season 7, episode 22. Uh, so what what Chris taught me is that um, uh, that that crash, that hypoglycemic crash that we have a reaction um, feels like a panic. And, and that that is often mistaken for craving and, and that then we have alcohol, which is high carbs and it, it, it soothes that feeling, but it doesn't really address it. And it's, so it's a system of going up and down and up and down. And, and so the way off of that, that roller coaster, that blood sugar roller coaster, according to her, is to introduce some, some um, good protein along with it. And that if you are going to have carbs, they should be uh, complex carbs. So um, I thought that was really interesting, and that made a lot of things make sense. For me, that was a real aha moment. Um, 
and in terms of being practical, I would have to say that one thing I really found was that cheese and nuts for me were triggers because anything that would have paired with a glass of wine just made me feel its absence even more. But if I wanted a snack, like how do you have a snack without the wine or with how do you have a snack that a addresses your craving and B um, doesn't make you doesn't say that this element is missing. So for me, orange slices also worked really well for that. So just cut up a bowl oranges and put those slices in a bowl in your fridge and you can just suck on them. So again, the sugar hits the pleasure reward circuitry. There's a, uh, some fiber in that. It's a little bit more natural. You really don't need a lot, especially in early recovery. You're probably dealing with um, uh, uh, sort of recurring cravings. Like I felt like I was a toddler yanking on my own pant leg saying, now? How about now? I want what now? What about now? Now? And so I just kept shoving things in my mouth to address that. So um, anyway, I highly recommend that episode and also um, I did an earlier episode with Sarah, and let me see if I can find that date. I think that was back in April, and that was another one about nutrition, and bear with me. I'm scrolling. I'm scrolling. Where did you go, Sarah? Um Okay, I'm going to find that and put it in the show notes. I thought it was April when we talked. And um, so anyway, she had some really great information as well about nutrition and sugar and the role that that plays in our recovery. Sarah Roberts, so that was in February. So that was Season 7, Episode 7. And um, so you can look up Chris at Nutrition for Recovery and you can look up Sarah Roberts at saratalksfood.com. Two excellent resources um, for healthier snacks. I confess I'm terrible about this. Um, I really, I actually still struggle sometimes with eating for comfort. Um, I don't think it's really so much tied to my recovery anymore as it's just something else for me to work on. Um, here's an interesting question. Uh, so this question is, what do you think of the sober curious trend? You know, there's some controversy about this right now. So some of the bigger, um, media outlets have been reporting on the curious case of the alcohol free trend and how, how this younger generation is, embracing sobriety kind of as a fad and going alcohol free as a fad and and the trend is called sober curious they're trying on the sober lifestyle um for some people in recovery that's been a little bit of a poke in the eye because um like amy dresner for example the fabulous comedian who wrote a really amazing recovery story um called my fair junkie i know she posted that you know, she was glad for people that it was working for them, but she kind of wanted someone to call out the fact that she really didn't have a choice. For her, it was life or death. So, you know, I, I feel like for some people who really have hit low bottoms and fought hard for their recovery, um, 
it can be a little bit frustrating that it's seen as a fad and as entertaining. And um, it almost reminds me of um, my children had anaphylactic allergies, for example. And so when we went to a restaurant and, and, which we rarely did because it was, it's a nightmare when you have allergies. But, you know, when we talked about, when we uh, informed people, oh, well, this child has allergies, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then someone else comes along and says, you know, that they're allergic to broccoli, but it's really just that they, you know, they don't like it. That can be a little bit frustrating because when you're dealing with a really serious situation, it feels a little bit like someone is undermining the seriousness of your situation by taking a more, a less serious approach to it. So I understand, I, I say all that to, to say I understand people that are frustrated by it. From my perspective, I really think that the earlier that people can have an intervention in the spectrum of their alcohol use, if it's problematic, the better outcomes they can expect. And, you know, I'm all for anything that helps people live better, increase awareness. Now, you know, if you're, if you're trying out um, recovery as, a, as like a fad or something to talk about, well, you know, you might, you might learn something along the way that's super helpful to you. And you might also um, take that more lighthearted approach because it masks the fact that you're actually really afraid and concerned about this. So, I don't know, I I think it's positive, and I also think that anything that gets people talking about it more is going to take away some of the shame and stigma for the rest of us, and um, I, I just, I, I think things are moving in a positive direction. I think all these conversations and books, podcasts, and like all the stuff that you're doing in your lives, and that, you know, content creators are doing with their efforts. I think all of this is having an impact and I think it's only positive. Uh, Jackson's mommy asks me how to explain your social anxiety to your friends and loved ones. So I um, am really, have always been really good at hiding this. And I think in some ways um, people that don't know me very well might be surprised to hear that I have social anxiety. I think the people that do know me very well might not call it social anxiety, but they know something's up, like that I'm tense or I'm crabby or I'm off. Um, so first of all, I, in my experience, have chosen a few people to just tell the truth to. And um, so that includes my husband, my kids, um, my good friends and just tell them, you know what? I don't, I'm sorry. I can't come to that like women's thing you're doing because I just don't do very well in those situations. Like, can I take you for lunch instead? Because that's a way better situation for me. So I often put it that way. I don't always throw the label on it as social anxiety. I just tell them, you know, I'm trying not to do things that make me crazy or make me, I shouldn't use that language, I guess, but you know, the, I try to put it in, uh, the vernacular of the people that I'm with. Let's put it that way. So you can let your friends know, you know what, I'm, I've really, I've kind of figured out that I really don't like um, charity galas. Um, I really don't like going to silent auctions or whatever thing that you 
find triggering for you. I guess I just revealed what I find triggering. Um, and and say, you know, I'm sorry, I'd, I'd like to do something with you. I've just learned this about myself, that this makes me uncomfortable. So can I invite you to something else instead? That's one way to do it. I mean, what I'm saying and not saying at the same time is, is um, edit your life a little bit so you're not doing as many things that give you that social anxiety. You don't have to press through it. There's a lot of things we do that are optional. And um, so I just, honesty is the best policy, but choose your audience. And um, so, you know, your neighbors or the other moms, like as you're waiting for your kids, they probably don't need to hear the word social anxiety come out of your mouth. It might be a little heavy. It might land with a thud. But um, I think there's just, you know, ways to show that you know yourself and that you care about their experience as much as yours. And to be able to say, you know what, I really want to enjoy my time with you. So instead of doing this thing that's, that I'm like never super comfortable with, let's do something else. So that's my suggestion there. That's what's worked for me. Um, I believe this question comes from, okay, this comes from Shell, who says, how to navigate the change in your relationship dynamics after one of you stops drinking? Ooh. Uh, I'm unfairly, uh, she goes on to say, I'm unfairly expecting my husband to be my sober coach, which of course isn't working. We've had so many really fun times over the years and have unfortunately involved around wine, revolved around wine. Uh, it feels like we're crossing a brand new bridge in our 29-year-old relationship. I think I brought up two topics here. <laughs> Thoughts? So, um, I congratulations first of all on your long relationship. That's beautiful. My husband and I are about to celebrate um, 30 years of marriage in two weeks, which is why I'm going away to the lake with my husband to celebrate that. He does still drink. Um, he's a normie. And it did take a while to figure this out. So when I first quit drinking and he said he was kind enough to, to sort of have a closer conversation with me and say, what do you need from me in this? What do you expect from me in this? And in my denial and um, like lack of self-awareness, I said, oh, no, no, you don't need to do anything different. You don't need to change a thing. It's just me that needs to change. I'm going to keep doing all the same things. Everything's going to be exactly the same, except I'm not going to be drinking. So that I don't recommend. Um, if you've already done that, go take your partner for coffee and explain to them that that was a bad idea and that you would like a revision <laughs> and you may have to figure it out together. Um, I really love the work of Esther Perel. And one thing, she's a, a relationship expert. She's got a really great podcast called Where Should We Begin? But I first heard about her on the Dear Sugars podcast where she was talking with Cheryl Strayed and um, is it Greg Almond? But anyway, they're not doing the podcast anymore, but it's still there. So go look it up because even though she doesn't talk specifically about addiction and recovery in relationships, she talks about when we are expecting our partner to be all things. We expect our partner to be our soulmate and to have, you know, cover, tick all the boxes for us and that we are going to tick all the boxes for them. And that somehow if that doesn't happen, we are deficient or they are deficient or our relationship isn't deficient, is deficient. So it sounds like Shell, you, you, you have awareness that, 
you're kind of doing this and that it's not working, right? Um, but I really love what Esther Perel says about that. And, and then she says, you know, that is not fair to anyone to uh, have those expectations. And also we know expectations are resentments waiting to happen and resentments are what fuels our um, negative thinking and our discomfort, which fuels our desire for escape, which fuels our need to drink. So, um, so we need to, you know, sort of cut that off at the knees and look to other places. And that is why people go to recovery meetings or go to sharing circles so that they have an outlet for that. But the question here is, like, what is the dynamic and what is the, what should that relationship look like? Every relationship is different. And I don't know a whole lot about this. I can tell you that, um, it's what's worked for us, and, and I'm surprised at my husband's reaction, is that um, I've sort of been able to tell him when there's those out-of-the-blue times when something is triggering me, I'll say, by the way, right now, um, you know, there's a hawk that's circling our house, <laughs> and it's making me anxious. Or, or, or you know, I, I'm really, or I saw a hawk the other day. This is why I'm saying hawk. I live on the edge of town, and there's a hawk that's been hanging around, eyeing up our little dog. And um, so to say to him, you know, I realize that we're in the house watching TV and that the dog is on the couch with us, but it, I'm still having anxiety about that hawk out there. Um, and instead of saying like, well, don't be dumb, he's like, wow, like he's starting to find, I think, it interesting to realize that my brain works differently than his. And um, I love the word neurotypical or neuroatypical, or there's, there's different words for that. Um, and uh, I love thinking about just the way that different, our brains all work differently. And so there's some ways, you know, when it comes to anxiety and depression that my brain doesn't work the way um, a typical brain would under optimal circumstances. And this is especially true, you know, if someone has a developmental disability or a mental illness or a head injury, things aren't working the way they normally would. And isn't that interesting? Well, what do we need to do to help that work better? This is what I love about being alive in 2019, because the fiction I was just writing was set in the 1930s, where if there was something wrong with you. There wasn't a whole lot of compassion around that. There was just something wrong with you and you were weird or odd or a problem. And there wasn't really a lot of tools to help you um, deal with that. And there also wasn't a whole lot of compassion around what it must be like to feel that way. So dialing it back to these sort of low impact um, symptoms of anxiety or triggers um, just to be able to say to my husband, you know what? Okay. I don't know if you can smell it, but right now I can smell the red wine from the next table in the restaurant and I'm finding it a little bit hard. So I'm going to order a coffee so that I can smell that instead and just sharing with him what's going on for me because I know that across the table, like he is just always in happy calm land, like nothing ruffles this guy. He's just Steady, Eddie, even Steven. And it, I've just seen that instead of, and, and I also don't tell him in a way of this is a problem and I'm expecting you to solve it for me or I'm not trying to create drama or anything. I just, it's just been saying, making him aware, hey, 
just out of, just for the sake of curiosity, here's what's going on for for me over here, and also here's what I plan on doing about it, and that's kind of worked for us. Um, also, um, alcohol in the home, we can talk about that. I so admire. Anyone who is brave enough right off the bat to say to their partner or the other people in their family, no alcohol in my house. Um, I, Because I was in this denial and everything's fine, I'm the only problem, I'm the only thing that has to change. Because I did that, um, I didn't take that stand for myself. And um, so I had to create some retroactive boundaries. So, you know, in the beginning, I was still trying to, like, cook with wine for the white wine sauce. I don't do that anymore. I leave it out. I add a little lemon juice. It's fine. Um, I would still, if we were having company, uh, I would still, like, stop and pick up wine for them and serve it to them. Now, I don't touch it. I refuse to touch a bottle of alcohol um, unless, you know, absolutely necessary. There's other people that can do that. And, you know, people are considerate. They don't expect you to do that. So I think I've developed some boundaries and, um, and I'm also grateful for the things that my husband has done for me. So one thing he's done is he meets his pals once a week, three o'clock on a Monday. Um, they're all old retired guys, right? So they, they, they meet and they, they visit for an hour and a half and they, so he takes it out of the house and he goes and he meets his friends. Often he'll bring home supper with him afterwards and you know, it just, it gets it away from me and I'm not having to host that in my house. So I hope that answers your questions, gives you some thoughts on that. Um, Lisa writes that she's seven years in, congratulations, Lisa, and has become so annoyed with family drinking, talking about drinking, talking about when they are drinking. I have to limit contact because the days after it ruins my serenity. I have less patience with them because they know my history. That's a hard thing. That's a really hard thing. And um, I would have to say, I hear a lot of that on the show. And in other episodes, I hear people talking about that. And all I can say is, you know, there's, there's two, I guess there's a few ways to handle it. One is to be around them less in situations that are drinking. One is to host if possible, or, or orchestrate um, meetups that are less likely to involve drinking. I'm a big fan of brunch, uh, uh, especially if you go to like a pancake house that doesn't serve alcohol. So everybody can like go crazy on strawberries and whipped cream. And, um, uh, and, you know, I just don't engage in those conversations so much. Um, If you don't, they they kind of fall flat and without being rude, but you know, I'm just not super excited in the same way as if you start talking to me about heavy metal music, I'll, I'll tolerate your, your monologue for a while, you know, because <laughs> I'm happy for you that you love that so much, but there's only so much I can give back to you in that conversation. It's, I mean, that conversation is going to fall flat. So I don't know. I, I, I guess you could be proactive in, in that way of, of trying to, find other ways to connect, um, doing things together that, that can't, um, involve alcohol. Um, but it seems to me alcohol is infiltrating a lot of things that it didn't used to. So, I mean, yoga and paint classes are, are all about wine these days. And that's just ridiculous to me, but I think there are ways to facilitate 
get-togethers that, that don't revolve around alcohol. And you, you don't have to go to every family thing you're invited to. And maybe they'll start to figure out that if it's all about booze, you can't be there or you won't stay for long, you know, go for a little while. But family is definitely hard. It's definitely hard. And it's not just because of the, ha, I just burped into my microphone. I hope you couldn't hear that. <laughs> I was hoping to post this show without having to edit it. Uh, well, I'm leaving it in. I hope you love me enough. <laughs> my friends, bear with me. Um, okay, so family is super triggering to begin with. And you alluded to that. Lisa, when you said, you know, I have less patience with them because they know my history. And and sometimes they drag it out and then we fall into those roles of family of origin. Like, oh, you're always so bossy or oh, you're always so dramatic. I personally, when I'm around my mom, um, you know, I just, I do. I, 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 I'm back into, it's, it's just a different role. And um, awareness can really help with that. And resisting that the urge to not only to fall into those roles but to cast others in them and just kind of try and meet them where they're at today I have found is really helpful and um yeah that's a hard one um so I'm going to hop over um to Facebook and look at some of those questions because we're ticking along with this with this episode and you guys asked a lot of questions and I really appreciate it. It was really good of you to do that. So Millie asks me to talk about trying new things and getting out of my comfort zone. Okay. So trying new things and getting out of your comfort zone. So as a person who's anxious, trying new things makes me anxious, but I'm also, I also like, I'm a happy person who's pretty capable. So I, I do like to do different things. What I would suggest is, like, don't try new things if they're going to involve alcohol. Don't put yourself in those situations. So if you want to learn how to line dance, don't go to a bar to take a line dancing lesson. Go to a class that won't have alcohol at it. And as I said, be careful because a lot of things are having alcohol at it. Um, if you really want to work on your public speaking skills but you have social anxiety or you don't like crowds, then, um, you know, there's Toastmasters, there's a small, small groups to work on those things. So what I'm kind of getting at is that I've tried to pursue new things, but in smaller groups and safer situations, probably the craziest thing I did in all my sobriety was get on a plane and go to Mexico by myself to a She Recovers retreat. Um, when I was two years sober because I just didn't know anybody and I needed friends. And I was like, I have to go make some friends. I have to. Now I could have stayed in my town and gone to a recovery meeting. Those ladies are lovely. I have since done that. And I'm glad I did, but going to that, going to that event in Mexico, I knew it was alcohol free. I knew I would be safe in terms of not being in a situation where I was likely to drink um, or even confronted with alcohol. So my only risk there was, and I was afraid, I was afraid that I wasn't going to like them and they weren't going to like me. And I thought that's not going to happen. But if, if for some reason, you know, it does turn out that um, I just didn't, 
that I felt uncomfortable with people. I could go to my room or I could just lay on the beach and read a book. Well, everyone is lovely. And in the recovery space, people are so open and welcoming and non-judgmental and that whole, I'm not going to like them and they're not going to like me thing. That to me is a trick that our brain plays on us to keep us stuck in our old behaviors. I mean, it's a very childish sounding thought and I'm almost embarrassed to tell you that I had it, but it, um, it's the truth. That is what I thought. And, uh, and it was just a thought. It wasn't true. So, Trying new things is scary, but wow, it's so great. And there's so many hours in the day. And I really tried to use, especially early in recovery, one thing that's coming back to me now as a result of you asking this question is I'm remembering how in those first weeks, it was so great after the dinner dishes were done. And normally I'd be tucking into the couch um, for the evening, you know, zombieing out for the night. Uh, I would go get my car, and that's when I would go to the grocery store. I live in a community where it is safe to be out and about at night. So I, I would go to Walmart, and then I would buy, you know, the lotion and the nail polish and some magazines and whatever I needed so that then when I came home and it was maybe 9 o'clock at night, I had something to do then for the next hour to get me through till bedtime. And so even just that, even just being able to go out at night was a new thing and a fun thing. and felt really freeing. It was really great. Uh, Leah, Leah or Lee, I'm not sure how to pronounce your name, but I love that name, by the way, um, asks, when I started to see and feel the positive changes that outweighed the urge to drink. Um, She has 11 months today. Congratulations. That's so beautiful. And she asks if I can get really specific about the positives and how they affect my everyday life. Thank you for this question. Um, that's really helpful too to know that that hearing about this helps you. Um, so probably the the really the most positive thing is that when I quit drinking, it gave me the space to look inside and ask why I was drinking and what needed changing. Now, I didn't know I was going to do that. I just thought I was going to quit drinking and then everything else would be fine. But as I was poking around all the resources and looking at um, the information from different programs and the things that they have you do to change your behaviors and change your thinking, you know, it became clear to me that I was going to have to address some of my thinking. And that was at first scary. And then it was really wonderful to be able to think that, wait a minute, all these things that I think are positives are actually contributing to my alcoholism. What the heck? So, for example, uh, I remember writing this in an early post of Unpickled. I remember writing the words, I expect a lot of other people. I have high expectations for others and I deliver on those high expectations for me. And uh, I get a lot done and I bring out good work in other people because I have high expectations. So as you've already heard me say a few moments ago, expectations as it turns out are not a good thing. And I had to ask myself, well, why do I think that? And why do I feel like I need to be so demanding of myself and others? And what's really going on? And that led me to do 
some thinking about things and to address things. And where did that come from? Where did I get that messaging? And where did I get this idea that I'm not as good as the next person and that I have to try harder and that I'm, I have something that I need to overcompensate for? If I can look around at the other people around me and say, you are a child of God or you, you, know, you are here for a purpose, every person on this planet has purpose and value. If I can see the truth of that for other people, why can't I see it for myself? Where did I get that idea? And um, that to me is the biggest positive change is just having been able to sort of heal my heart a little bit. And I also really thought that I had a beautiful, perfect childhood. And I did have a really good, happy childhood. And I I have a nice family and I've had a nice life, but I've still got some messed up messages. And, um, you know, even when people are taking care of you and being loving, you can still get your wires crossed or they can they can have some things that serve them well that don't serve you well you know be a good girl or um you know whatever whatever mantras our parents told us that then in our little brains we thought it meant something else or you know we mix things up so going back and unpacking all of that has been really good for me um being involved in this show has taught me how to listen to people better and I'm better at that than I used to be and I'm getting better all the time I mean it's one thing when we're recording and I have a job to do and I have 10 minutes to or sorry 60 minutes to um, you know give that person my full attention and I have my headphones on and you know it's easy to stay focused on that but sometimes face to face it's harder to do that because we're thinking about, oh, I have this idea, or then this person walks by, or, you know, the phone rings, or buzzes, or, you know, there's distractions, and then it sets your mind reeling, or maybe face-to-face. For me, I think I'm not as comfortable with people face-to-face sometimes. I just have a little more nervous energy in person than I do, um, than I sound in a podcast because of, fewer inputs involved in a podcast. So um, I think that's helped me, though. That's helped me as a parent and as a partner. And um, and also, uh, I don't take offense as much. That's been really helpful. And then that the lesson that comes from the AA material of staying on your own side of the street, mind your own business, um, accept people for where they're at and let them worry about making changes in their life all you can do is change you that has been like mind-blowing for me and that has really changed me a lot because I think I I thought other people needed helping fixing and that translates to being manipulative and that's not good for anybody Um, so we have a few minutes left And I'll keep going because there's lots of questions. Thank you all so much for helping me out with this hour by posting questions and ideas of things that you'd like to hear talked about. Kip asked me to talk about the importance of faith in recovery. Uh, I know it is a really big piece for the 12-step program. In fact, you know, it is really, you know, several of the steps involve a relationship with the higher power. Um, I will say that uh, I've always really had a kind of a 
spiritual heart. I've always had a religious interest. I've always felt religion had an important place in my life. And so I was confused by the idea that recovery, you know, when I would read the AA literature, because I was trying to apply it to my non-AA recovery, um, and I would ask, you know, and I, I felt like it didn't fit for me because it said this is lacking, you know, and you need to regain it and you you need to heal your spirit. And I, that confused me because I felt like I was in pretty good alignment with God and that what I wanted to do was, was sort of take my God given power and apply it. So for some people it is, it is essential and it is a very beautiful, meaningful part of their recovery. Um, for me, it is kind of status quo, to be honest. Um, if anything, I've kind of had my eyes open to the fact that a lot of my comfort that I took in church, I think, was really related to the fact that it was sort of a formulaic and um, g- gave me a little bit of relief from having to try to figure out how to be good because it just told me how to be good. And so sometimes I feel like I've had to let my religious thinking become a little bit more precarious and trust that it was okay to do that. Um, My personal observation is that there are people who get sober without that being important in their recovery. So I suspect that it's an individual thing. I've read somewhere at some point, which doesn't mean it's true, but I read this, <laughs> that, um, uh, that that your brain, some people have more religious, like, capacity in their brain than other people. I don't know if it's an inherited thing, if it's a DNA thing, but it's just some people are, are more lit up by that than other people. And when I look at my three sons, um, I would have to, I can see that being true, that they are all very different when it, when it comes to their attitude towards religion. And for some, it's super important in their life. And for some, it just, you know, it just doesn't, it doesn't do it. So I don't know a definitive, definitive answer on that. I don't know if there's a definitive answer that exists, but I really respect how important it is to a lot of people. And I've seen the amazing transformation that it has made in some people's lives. So um, I think that for people that are listening that feel like something's missing in their life, I would really explore that. And if you are looking for a way to explore that, a 12-step meeting is sort of all set up for that and um, is a good place to start. But there's also a lot of other resources out there that address that. So maybe that's something to look into. I'm not going to get to all of these questions. Um, So um, someone asked me what was the hardest thing. Where did that question go? I just saw it. Oh, Margaret. Hi, Margaret. (laughs) Margaret's a friend of mine, so I know who she is. Um, Margaret asks, what was your biggest hurdle and toughest moment to get through? Hands down, 2017, um, losing my dad and my father-in-law within a couple months of each other, both of them in pretty difficult ways. Um, That was the hardest thing to get through 
absolutely. Grief is a bugger. And um, it wasn't just their death. It was their dying. And being at the hospital every day for us at the end, it was a month. It was a month of going every day before my dad passed. And um, that was really hard. There was a lot of unfinished business there that I realized was never going to be resolved. You know, I think in the beginning I was going every day with hope that there was going to be this hallmark moment and that we were going to have some kind of a uh, um, things would be, you know, that the music would play and then we would have this conversation and I would have this thing that I could hold on to forever. And I just didn't get that. You know, he declined slowly by the time he was in the hospital. He just wasn't himself anymore enough to have that kind of a conversation. And um, and so I I had to really just be there for what it was and be kind and be present and be forgiving and be like keep my own side of the street clean. Right. I'm, I had to really walk the walk and, and live those livings and just feel my feelings and be uncomfortable. And it was hard. And um, there was, there was several occasions during that period of time. And then after he died and, and then here we go again, right after that, my father-in-law, um, where I wanted nothing more than to drink and stop feeling it or do anything that would stop feeling it, me from feeling that pain. But um, at that point, um, you know, I knew that it wasn't going to help, that it was only a pause button, that, you know, what happens when you take a week off work? Well, you come back and the paperwork is stuck stacked up higher on your desk. Well, that is what happens when your emotions, when you numb them. Um, So I just knew that if I made the choice to drink and as a way of escaping my feelings, that they would just, you know, pile up until I got to them. So better that I digested them in little bits and just stayed present. And um, that was absolutely the hardest thing. And I think that I processed, I'm Canadian and I say process, um, I think I, I processed all of that more efficiently than other people in my family who did lean on alcohol and not that they leaned on it in a problematic way, but just, you know, for, for, um, for anyone who goes home at the end of the day and then drinks to fall asleep and doesn't take that time to to feel what they're feeling and go through the emotions of that day and feel them and then they're gone. Um, I, I think that I have kind of landed in a better place a little bit quicker than had I not done that. So that's my feeling on that. Boy, it's hard. And any of you that are going through that right now, and just statistically some of you are, my heart goes out to you. And I really, really encourage you if it has made you give up your sobriety, take it back. Um, it's, I don't think I have to explain to you that it's probably not helping you. Um, and if you are struggling to stay sober and wondering if it's worth it, absolutely it is. So my heart goes out to anyone who's going through a loved one with an illness, a family member with an, with a illness, even if it's not fatal illness, I mean, you know, 
I have a friend whose child just broke their arm. I mean, that's hard. And yeah, just sobriety will serve you well through all of that. Um, a couple more questions before I go. Um, Christina. Hi, Christina. Boy, I, I see your name on this list of questions and I haven't heard from you for a long time. We have been in the same sober groups for a long time. Makes me happy to see your name. Um, is there ever a right time to tell someone you're concerned about their drinking behavior? Here's, this is a really good question. I want to tell you my experience with someone who I care about, who I was worried about. And I, well, I was, and I was new in sobriety and I was kind of excited to like share with her that I thought I had some solutions for her, but a friend cautioned me not to do that because she said, if she's not ready to hear it. um, And I said, I think something's going on with her and I just kind of want to let her know. And I want to call her out on it and let her know that I'm here to help. But my friend said, you know, that may not actually be as useful as you think, because if they're not ready to talk about it, they're going to push you away and feel shame. And then when they do need help, they can, even though you're the person they might want to talk to or know they should talk to, that shame or that um, stubbornness of, nope, I've already cut them out or I'm not going there, and then they're going to know they were right, um, will prevent them from coming to you and asking for help. So her recommendation, and it was good advice and I'm glad I took it, was to not go that route of confronting that person's drinking, but instead to deepen my relationship with that person and to build other experiences with them and to be close to them and to like go for coffee and keep the lines of communication open so that when they were ready, they knew that we, that it wasn't our only issue. You know, if you just kind of come out of nowhere and be uh, confrontational about something um, that can be hard, but if you build your relationship and broaden your relationship and that person sees that you're accepting of them in um, in a number of different ways and you demonstrate that in a number of different ways and also you're demonstrating quietly how, how recovery is working for you, then um, that can make it easier for that person to come to you when the time comes. Um, that's different than an intervention and an intervention is a whole different kettle of fish. Um, we did an interview a long time ago um, with Danielle of Real You Re- Revolution, and she was an interven- intervention specialist. And she, there's a really interesting episode, I think it's from about mm, 2013, on that topic. And I should have Danielle back on the show or anyone else. If anyone's listening that has had a really good intervention experience, either as the recipient of it or uh, a family member that participated in it, or if you're a professional who organizes interventions and has some expertise to share, maybe message me and let's, let's maybe we should do a show about that and, and learn a little bit more about that. So an inter- intervention is different. If someone is in danger or is in need of care, I think that's a, a completely different kettle of fish. Um, so that's my take on that one. Um, last question I'll throw out there comes from Chris Engen, who I was just talking about her nutrition for recovery and her question was, what was, or is your dialogue with your kids as they grow up? You quit drinking secretly. So when did you tell them your story? 
are you concerned about genetics in your kids drinking? Um, so I, my kids, when I quit drinking, they were 14, 16, and 18. And the oldest two, one was away at school, both of them were away at school. And uh, so it was just the 14-year-old was at home. And I didn't tell him a lot at the time. Um, I, t I told them that I had quit drinking, but I didn't, I don't think any of them really knew that I had a problem and I didn't elaborate on it for a while, but little by little things kind of came out and I just said, oh, I was drinking too much and, um, you know, I just felt like it was getting away on me. And I went to my counselor who I went to, um, told me that it was really helpful for my kids that I was quitting drinking, especially for the 14 year old who was still at home because I was sort of modeling for him, um, solving a problem and um, uh, taking the bull by the horns and also modeling abstinence, abstinence-based recovery. So um, she sort of helped me see the positives in that and gave me some guidelines about what was appropriate and what was not appropriate for them. My kids don't drink a whole lot, but yes, I do worry about um, them drinking. I'm not convinced that they're normies. I tell them all the time, hey kids, sorry about your crappy genetics. You know, you, you got it for me and I got it from my dad and it's just, you know, it's in our family. And so they know that I'll always be kind of watchful for that. Um, but pertinent to the last question, when is it a right time to say something? You know, I don't know. I think it's more, it's really important that I live the solution and that they always know that they can come to me. And I think if I saw them endangering themselves or their families, um, I would really try and, well, I would say something, but probably um, I would, I think it's important to look at things in the whole picture too. So uh, as a parent, how do you get involved? How do you support their recovery? Um, do you encourage going to therapy? Do you encourage family counseling? I don't know. I just, I'm hoping that awareness is enough and I probably would seek out some guidance from someone in a program about, okay, I'm keeping my side of the street clean, but when, when is it, when do you step out and help someone else? Um, but kids are pretty smart and it seems to me that from all the people that have been on the show that have parents in recovery, a lot of people whose parents are in recovery still had to go through their own experience with alcohol or with whatever their ism was in order to come to their own recovery. So I don't know what the answer is to that. Do we have to let them go through it or do we try and preempt for them? Maybe we send them the sober curious link. <laughs> Here, try the sober curious stuff. I don't know, but I really think the more that we model good, healthy relationships, and I also tell them things all the time. You know what, you guys, like, I, it's so funny that I used to try to get you to do X, Y, Z, because now I'm learning that even though I really valued that, you know, that wasn't a good part of something I've had to undo, like people pleasing or um, people pleasing is a big thing. I used to be really frustrated that my boys weren't people pleasers like I was. And so I would tell them, you have to think about other people. And, and uh, so now I tell them, well, I'm glad you're considerate and that you're healthy because I was really trying to teach you some unhealthy boundaries back then. And, and, um, and so I, even just to have some of those lighthearted conversations and share with them what we're learning about themselves, about ourselves, um, can probably help build their awareness and, and knowledge 
of things. I'm tired of my own voice. Are you guys tired of me? It's been an hour. I think that's enough. And besides, I'm still feeling really weird about the fact that I burped in the microphone. And um, that seems like I'm not sure if that was more than you really needed to know about me. So I think that I'm going to wrap it up here. There's just There's been so many good questions. Maybe when I'm on holidays, if I have a quiet hour, I'll do another one. But probably not because... I would rather hear what you have to say than what I have to say. I am doing something else interesting with the show that I invite all of you to do. Uh, on your on your smartphones, you have a feature that's called a voice memo feature, and you can record into that an MP3 and email it to me. So if you would like to say something, have some feedback, or share some quick thoughts on the show, you can email me an MP3 of your voice. And I can play that. And that is an alternative to doing a full interview and being a guest. And I have also been inviting past guests of the show to do updates in this way and to um, record themselves, record an update of where they're at now that I can play and, and share. So I invite all of you to do that as well. So that is all I'm going to do for today. Thank you, everyone, for these questions. They've been excellent. I'm sorry I wasn't able to get to all of them. Um, I love so many of you. I see so many familiar names, people out there that are doing good work in helping others, keeping the conversation going, and just in, in being involved in recovery in an active, interactive, social way um, in whatever capacity that you are. And I'm really grateful for your role in my recovery um, and I'm and for the joy I just feel like there's a lot of joy in life after alcohol and um, and I'm grateful for that so with gratitude I'm going to call it a wrap and play the closing music that's all for this time so until next time please take good care Not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back A little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Weakness head on me In a dark corner is where shame lies behind We think you're strong it's just saving
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.